got your Bible with you, be opening up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, that is where in just a few moments we're going to direct our attention and begin our, our Bible study this afternoon. Thank you so much for being here. A lot of things you could be doing on a Saturday, you chose to be here, that says something about you. I'm thankful you're here. I hope when we're done you can say that you're glad that you were here as well. My wife is able to be with me today, as are my two little girls, Bree and Shay, they're both here, and my mother-in-law is here too, and it's good to have all of them, all of them here with me today. We want to talk this afternoon, well, I just jumped out of the presentation there, we'll get back in there, we want to talk about the canon of Scripture and we want to talk about how it is that we got our Bibles today. And we want to try to answer what on the surface at least is a simple question. Can you and I, can we have confidence in the Bibles that we hold today? The Bibles that you and I hold in our hands today, Genesis to Revelation, can we have confidence that what we're reading in these Bibles is an accurate representation of what God inspired all those many years ago, what He wants us to know about Him, what He wants us to know about His Son, what He wants us to know about living holy lives. And so that's the direction we're going to go with our study today. If you got your Bible, like I said, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to begin just with a statement that is made there in Scripture, but a statement that is exceptionally important. 2 Timothy chapter 3, you look there at verse 14. You, however, Paul says to Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the holy writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God, Paul says, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The claim that is made there, the claim that Scripture makes for itself is that it is inspired by God. To our friends who are more skeptical, to our friends who are more inclined towards atheism or agnosticism, that's not going to be a convincing argument, though, is it? And if the only answer that we have for our faith is, well, I believe the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible claims to be the Word of God, having nothing of greater depth to say than that, we're going to find ourselves in some hardship. And our friends who might be more skeptically inclined may put us into some really awkward positions because there are other religious texts that would claim to be inspired by God. So which are we to choose? But there is something significant to see in that claim from Scripture that it is inspired by God, and we hope to, to pull out some of that, that practicality as we go through our study today. Uh, let's talk here, here at the beginning just by addressing some foundational terms and principles 
we're going to be talking about in our study this afternoon. When we talk about the canon of Scripture, what are we talking about? That word canon uh, comes from a Greek word for reed, uh, a reed that would be used like a ruler, and it eventually came to mean uh, the, the idea of a standard. And so when we're talking about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about the standard or the collection of inspired books. What books are inspired by God and thus are a part of this body called, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Scripture. There's another term we're going to be using, and that is the term autograph. Used in a little bit different sense, though, than, than what we use it normally in our society today. I can remember we were eating at a at Hart's Seafood Restaurant in Conway, Arkansas, around the time that I was six years old. And my mom and dad pointed out to me, hey, right over there, that's, that's, that's the mayor of Conway. Well, I just thought that was about the neatest thing in the world there could be. And so I asked my mom and dad for a piece of paper and a pen, and I went over and I got his autograph. I don't know that the mayor had ever been asked for an autograph before, but he was me on that day. That's normally how we use the term autograph, right? We might go to a ball game, we've got a player's trading card, we want to get his or her signature on it, right? Autograph. We usually just think of signature. Uh, There's a more literary definition to that idea of an autograph. The World English Dictionary defines it as a book, a document, something handwritten by its author. It is an original manuscript. And that's the sense in which we're going to be using that term autograph today. An original manuscript. For example, Matthew's original gospel account. Paul's original letter to the Romans, to the churches in Galatia. Autographs. The original document, the original manuscript. All right, that being understood, let's confront some realities. Uh, Realities that we as Christians need to be aware of, realities that we need to embrace, and realities that we need to understand are not detrimental to our faith, should not cause us to be fearful, but rather when we do some investigative study, we find out some of these things might actually be a blessing. Let's talk first about autographs. Number one, To our knowledge, we don't possess any of the autographs of Scripture. To our knowledge, we don't have Peter's original epistle or his second epistle. We don't have Paul's uh, original letter to the Corinthians, first, second, or the third one, right? we got anti-Corinthians in there somewhere. Uh, We don't possess any autographs that we know of today. You think about how these would have been put together, how they would have been constructed over the course of thousands of years. These originals have either been lost or destroyed. I would submit to you, I think we're going to see throughout the course of our study, that's not necessarily a bad thing and that's not necessarily something that ought to defeat our faith. Rather, it can be seen as a blessing and we'll talk more about that as we go forward. When we talk about the canon... As we noted there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it is a canon of Scripture. Well, what is Scripture? 2 Timothy chapter 3 would indicate it is those works that are inspired by God, those books, those writings, those manuscripts that are inspired by God. So then, and I think this is a very important distinction we need to make in our lives and in discussing topics like these, 
These writings are inspired by and they originate with God. Therefore, God determines the canon of Scripture. It is not our job as humans, really we can't determine the canon. God did. By choosing which documents, which writings, which manuscripts, He would inspire He is the one who determines canon, not us. It is our responsibility as humans then to recognize it. We don't select the canon. We merely recognize the work that God himself has already done. That may seem like a distinction without a merit. I would submit to you it's an important distinction, and we'll talk more about that here in just a few moments. Now, Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, claims to be inspired by God. That's important, very important. It is a high claim and a high test that Scripture places against itself. When Scripture claims to be inspired by God, we need to understand what Scripture reveals about God, right? When we think about the notable attributes of God, we talk about God being omniscient, that He's all-knowing. We talk about God being omnipotent, that He's all-powerful. Uh, We talk about God's omnipresence, that He sees and knows everything that's happening. We talk about a God who is infinite in holiness, a God who is infinite in righteousness. That's the picture of God that is laid down for us in Scripture. And so when we're told that Scripture is inspired by this God, there are some logical tests then that flow from that. Any document then that proceeds forth from a God who is all-knowing, who is all-seeing, who is all-powerful, who is infinite in holiness, who is infinite in righteousness, any document, any writing that comes from Him must reflect Him, right? That's logical, isn't it? If we're being told that God has inspired Scripture and God is all-knowing, then we would expect, for example, these documents to be historically and scientifically accurate, right? If the documents we're looking at are not historically accurate, if they're not scientifically accurate, were they inspired by an all-knowing God? No. And if they're not inspired by an all-knowing God, does it have a place in the canon? Does it belong? No. It needs to be whole from a literary perspective. Ultimately, it's the same author in back of it all, right? If it's not whole from a literary perspective, it doesn't work. Or how about the God in whom logic is rooted? Talked about that just a little bit last night. Can't be Tyler and not Tyler at the same time. Why? That's rooted in the nature and the character and the person of God. That's, That's where logic is rooted. Any document that proceeds forth from the God of Scripture has got to be a document that is logically consistent. If we're seeing these fundamental breakdowns in logic, if we're seeing stories about Nebuchadnezzar sailing across the Pacific Ocean and invading America and Canada, well, rip it up, be done with it. doesn't belong in the canon. Why? It's not historically accurate. If we're seeing in Scripture the idea that we need to be practicing bloodletting in order to get rid of diseases, we can rip it up and be done with it, right? Because we understand that's scientifically inaccurate. Those aren't the hallmarks of a God who knows everything. 
Understand that when Scripture claims to be inspired by God, that's not just some throwaway statement. That's not Paul just trying to rubber stamp the idea that we're Christians and here's our holy book. It's the Holy Spirit through Paul placing an exceedingly stringent test upon Scripture itself. It claims to be inspired by an all-knowing, all-powerful God. And if it is, if it's going to meet the test that it puts upon itself, it's got to come through each one of these tests and pass it with flying colors. The fact that we see Scripture claiming over and over again to be the product of God inspiring it Significant and important. All right, with that groundwork laid, let's get into our first question this afternoon. It's this. Can we have confidence in today's biblical text? Not talking about the original manuscripts, because that's what God inspired, right? At least that's what Scripture claims. Scripture claims that God inspired those original manuscripts. He inspired Paul. He inspired Peter. He inspired Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John when they were writing what they did. But we don't have those original manuscripts, do we? So are we just out of luck? Are are we just kind of rolling the dice and hoping that we got the letters and the words correct? Let's examine this a little bit. How can we be sure... Whoops, that didn't turn out well. It's all right. You get the picture. How can we be sure that what we're reading is an accurate representation of what God inspired those men to write so many years ago. How can we be confident in that? Like we said earlier, lacking the autographs is not a significant problem. We'll talk more about that in a little bit, just put a tack there. But it can actually be be a blessing. But I want you to think about this as well. The Bible, the Bible is the most well-documented work of history. Okay, think about this with me for a few moments. Let's let's put this chart up here. Let's talk about evidence. We're not even going to consider the whole Bible this afternoon. Let's just take the New Testament. 27 books. Okay. We've got the New Testament. We've got Homer's the Iliad. We've got uh, Plato's Tetralogies. Those are the, the three we're going to look at. The New Testament was written about A.D. 40 to A.D. 100. Give it a span of about 60 years there, plus or minus, but somewhere in the vicinity of 60 years there. Homer's The Iliad was written in 800 B.C. Plato's Tetralogies, written 427 to 347 B.C. Okay, just, to, just to give you an idea here of, of when these documents were written, all right? Our next category is the earliest extant manuscripts. Apparently the word existent is not a word you're supposed to use, and so you have to use the word extant. I don't like that. But extant is the word we're going to go with. Apparently the folks who wrote the dictionary weren't from East Texas. So the earliest extant, MSS, you'll see that in your Bible sometimes, right? You'll see that number one or number two beside a word or maybe an A or a B, and it tells you to go to your center column or your, the, the, the bottom of the page or the side column, and you'll see a little note there that says, some MSS read, that just means manuscripts. And it's the translating committee telling you there are some other manuscripts out there that provide a little bit of an alternate reading, okay? 
But we're talking about when is the earliest existing manuscript that we have a copy of this document. Okay? For Plato's tetralogies, the earliest extant manuscript we have today is from A.D. 900. That gives you a gap between original composition and manuscript copy today of around 1,300 years. And Plato's Tetralogies comes to us today on the basis of 210 manuscripts. When you talk about the Iliad, the Iliad comes to us separated from its original composition by 400 years, from original composition to earliest existing manuscript that we have a copy of today, 400 years. And Homer's The Iliad comes to us on the basis of about 1,750 manuscript copies. Now I want to pause here for just a moment and ask you a question. When you were in literature class, world lit, I think this would have been, for me, this would have been Miss Hargis, this would have been 10th grade. Did you read the Iliad? Did you have to read the Odyssey or uh, Allegory of the Cave or Republic by Plato? Okay. Homer's the Iliad is going to be the second most well-documented work of antiquity behind the Bible. Iliad is going to be second. Let me ask you a question. When you had to read Iliad, when you had to read the Odyssey, no watching, oh, brother, where art thou? didn't count. But when you, had to, when you had to read those in lit class, was there any doubt that what you were reading were, were the words of Homer? Was there any doubt that what you were reading were the very words that Homer had written and that they had been translated correctly and what you were reading when you were sitting in class opening up that, that huge hardback book that broke your back as you tried to haul it around to class every day, that when you were reading Iliad in there, was there any doubt that you were reading what was accurate? No. You were reading Homer. You were reading exactly what he had written. And there was no doubt about how it had been transferred down to us. This was a legitimate document. There was no doubt in the scholarship behind it that when we were reading Iliad and Odyssey, we were reading just exactly what Homer wrote and what Homer intended for us to read. Fantastic. I got no problems with that. But here's what I want us to do. I don't want us to ask for a special exception to be made to the Bible. That's not fair, is it? I want us to just, just use the same standard across the board. If we have confidence in Plato's Tetralogies, if we have confidence in Homer's The Iliad, could I submit to you we can have equal confidence in the New Testament? Earliest extant manuscript for the New Testament comes to us in about 125 A.D. That's going to give you a gap between 25 and 85 years. And actually the earliest extant manuscript we have is from John's Gospel account, which is going to skew towards the earlier end of that number. It's going to be closer to 25, 35, 40 years than it is 85. We'll look at that in just a few moments. What we need to see is it's closer to the original. Less time for deviations to take place, right? And then add to it this. The number of manuscript copies we have for the New Testament today, 
It's over 24,000. Things, things you don't hear in a world literature class when it comes to the Bible, right? I got no problem accepting that the Iliad is a proper representation of what Homer wrote all those years ago. But if we're going to maintain the same standards, which we should, we should be fair. We're going to maintain the same standard. What are we going to do with the New Testament? Which has a, a much larger body of manuscripts and exceptionally closer to the original date of composition than the Iliad, than the Odyssey, than Tetralogies, than Allegory of the Cave, than the Republic. Not so foolish to accept the New Testament as being authentic, is it? So how, how can you be sure? Lacking the autographs, like we said, is not a significant problem. It can actually be an unexpected blessing because what would happen? You would get that writing from Paul, you would get that writing from Peter, and what would you do with it? You wouldn't do what our Mormon friends do today. Our Mormon friends have some of those original documents for the Book of Mormon. What have they done with them? Lock them up. Lock them up, tuck them away. Only certain privileged people get to see them. Every now and then you will hear about somebody uh, clearing out an attic, clearing out an old store, finding an original copy of the Book of Mormon. What's the Mormon church that they always try to do? Buy it up, right? You don't get this textual tree. You don't get this tree of integrity where you can go and you can... Uh, you can do some comparison study and, and see how things have developed and changed and altered potentially over the years. You don't get that. But the fact that we don't have the autographs today speaks to what happened that the New Testament describes, that when people got these original manuscripts, what did they do? They didn't go down to Kinko's. They didn't go down to Office Depot and copy them off. They couldn't. So what did they do? They sat down with their scribes. They wrote them down. And then what did they do? Sent them off all throughout the known world at that time. Not having the autographs actually can end up being a blessing because folks didn't venerate these manuscripts to the point that nobody ever got to lay eyes on them. These were seen, these were copied, these were shared. And what we see today because of that is that archaeology is instilling even greater confidence in the scriptures today. This is the John Ryland's papyrus. Uh, this was acquired in 1920 as part of the Cairo Geniza discovery. It was translated in 1934. Uh, while this discovery was, was notable mostly for its Old Testament manuscripts, you, you had this fragment from John's account, the gospel, that was part of this discovery. It's a fragment of John 18, verses 31 through 33. And it dates to the early A.D. 100s. And here's something interesting that you can do with, uh, with this document. There's a thing, I'm, I'm sure Brother Hancock, Brother McClenney have, have mentioned this before. You've got what's called an interlinear Bible. Right? It's, it's a Bible that typically has two languages going at the same time. Normally with the New Testament, it's going to be a Greek interlinear. You've got the Greek New Testament and then below it, you've got an immediate translation of the Greek into English. 
Full disclosure, I cannot read a whole lot of Greek, but what I can do is I can go to an interlinear. And I can take my finger and I can look at the letters that are up there and look at the letters that are in my interlinear in the Greek. And you know what I see when I do that? Same thing. That if you're reading from, for example, the King James Version of the Bible, folks who were translating that didn't have access to the John Ryland's papyrus. But do you know what their, what their translation of John 18, 31 through 33 reflects? Just exactly what you see on that board. It has been called, and to our, our knowledge right now, it is the earliest known fragment of the New Testament. Here it is, just a little bit larger with a dark background. Front and back, you can see tattered, worn by the, uh, by the battles of time. But you take an interlinear sometime and you lay it down next to that picture, you're going to be able to trace out bits and pieces of John 18, 31 through 33. Which stands as a testament to the scholarship that is in back of our Bibles today. This isn't the only notable archaeological discovery. Here's another one. This is the Chester Beatty papyri, uh, papyrus 45, 46, and 47. It's housed in the University of Michigan and at other locations. This is a fragment of John chapter 10. In John chapter 11, it dates from about A.D. 200 to 300. Another Egyptian discovery, this time from a Coptic graveyard. And interestingly, here we are at 200 to 300 A.D., so we're separated from the New Testament composition by about 250 years, which is still less than the Iliad, which is still less than uh, tetralogies. It contains portions from all the Gospel accounts and the book of Acts separated from the original composition by about 250 years. That same set of discoveries, in Papyrus 46, you've got a fragment of Colossians chapter 2, which is dated to A.D. 180 to 200. Another Egyptian discovery here. It's housed in Dublin's Chester Beatty Library, but P46, this papyrus, contains nearly all of the book of Romans, nearly all of Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and portions of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So by the time that we get to A.D. 250, in our possession today, we can have manuscripts that cover nearly the entirety of the New Testament. About 200 years between existing manuscripts today an original composition. Not asking for a different standard. Asking for the same standard to be applied across the board. To be fair. There's what P46 looks like just a little bit closer. But then in a, in a discussion like this about these different manuscripts, a, a question always comes up. Well, I've heard people talk about that there are errors in the Bible. And, and depending, on, depending on who is talking about it and the audience that they're talking to, sometimes they describe them as variants. Sometimes they describe them as errors. But that, that's a pretty high number, isn't it? 200,000. 
especially when we consider we're just talking about 27 books in the New Testament. 200,000 variances, 200,000 errors. Why in the world would I have confidence in my New Testament then if there's 200,000 errors in it? Think about this for a minute. I'm going to submit to you that these variances are not always what scholars make them out to be. Pull out your Old Testament. I want you to come with me to the book of Jeremiah. Come with me to the book of Jeremiah. Let's look at chapter 39. Jeremiah chapter 39. Let's look at verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 1. Who is going to be brave for me today? Anyone reading out of the King James Bible that's willing to admit it in everyone's presence? Okay, who's reading from an electronic Bible? Oh, come, somebody be brave. There we go. Okay. Can you flip over to the King James for me? Do you mind reading out loud? You mind being a guinea pig? Okay, here we go. Follow along with me. Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 1. Read that for us, please, sir. 39.1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month came Nebuchadnezzar's king of Babylon and all his army against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. All right, you're reading from the King James Version, right? Read that verse for me again, please, sir. By the way, what's your name? Brent, thank you. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Pause the button. I want you to read that again. In the tenth, I'm not saying the first name again. No, it's okay. Yeah, we'll just give over Zedekiah. That's fine. In the tenth month came Nebuchadnezzar. Who? King Nebuchadnezzar. No, check that King James version. King Nebuchadnezzar. Oh. If you're reading from the King James version, it doesn't say Nebuchadnezzar. Who does it say? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Thanks, Brent. I appreciate it. Nebuchadnezzar. But that's not what it says in New King James Version, is it? Or New American Standard or English Standard. It says what? Nebuchadnezzar. What happened? The scholarship upon which the King James Version of the Bible was built understood that his name was Nebuchadnezzar. We had some archaeological discoveries come along in the years since the King James was put out. And we found out what? His name wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. It was Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know then that in manuscripts where you have that sort of spelling mistake, that's counted as a what? That's counted as an error. These simple spelling variations are counted as what are called these textual variances. And each instance of these textual variances in a manuscript count towards that total number of 200,000. Does that change anything in Scripture? I know we like to be called by the right name. My name's Tyler, not Taylor. Okay? Does that change anything? Folks, that's a lot of what's going to make up these 200,000 variants or quote-unquote errors that Bart Ehrman and guys like that will talk about. 
Ira Price, in his book, The Ancestry of Our English Bible, says on page 222, there are only 400 or so out of 200,000. There are only 400 or so variances which materially affect the sense of the reading, and of these, perhaps 50 are of any real significance. But no essential teaching of the New Testament is greatly affected by them. Even if we identified the places where these variances are, and even if we were so inclined to just cut them out of our Bibles and throw them away, what changes? Nothing. Neil Lightfoot in his book, How We Got the Bible, says this, from one point of view it may be said that there are 200,000 scribal errors in the manuscripts. But it is a wholly misleading and untrue to say that there are 200,000 errors in the text of the New Testament. This large number is gained by counting all the variations in all of the manuscripts, about 4,500. This means that if, for example, one word is misspelled in 4,000 different manuscripts, that counts as 4,000 errors. Suddenly, that 200,000 number doesn't sound too bad, does it? Let's talk a little bit about how the Bible went out for just a moment, and we're going to come back to this. How did that process work? Here we've got our autograph, right? And from passages like Colossians 4, when you receive this letter, send it on to the Laodiceans, and when the Laodiceans get their letter, they're going to send it over to you. What happened? You got the autograph. So you're there in Rome. You got the autograph. What are you going to do? You're going to copy it, and you're going to send it out. And then we get into those math classes that we always like. If you've got a dollar and you give three friends a dollar and they give three friends a dollar, well, how many people end up with a dollar after that, right? You talk about this exponential explosion, right? Then we've got this document tree branching off of A1, the document tree branching off of A2, the document tree branching off of A3. That's how the biblical text was transmitted. Uh, maybe you're more of a spatial person like I am. Here's our map of the New Testament world. And let's say we've got Paul's letter over here to Philippi being written from that Roman prison. He sends it over there to the Philippians. And we've got Paul's letter from Rome being sent over here to the area of Colossae. But what happened there? Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 15, you took that letter, you copied it, you sent it out, right? So you've got the gospel messages being sent out all across the New Testament world at that time. What if they're in Corinth? Possibly that's where he's writing the book of Galatians from. He writes and sends that epistle to the Galatians. What would they do with it? Same thing that the Colossians did, same thing that the Philippians did. What would they do? And remember, when you're writing Galatians, you're not writing to one church, are you? Writing to multiple churches, to the churches of Galatia. What would they do? One church gets it, they copy it down, they can keep one for themselves, and then they send it on. And everybody gets to read what Paul wrote, and it ends up exploding and going all throughout the New Testament world at that time. And in fact, some of them are even going to make their way all the way down to Africa, right? How do we know that? Well, that Cairo Geniza, do you remember when we were talking about the Cairo Geniza? What was one of the discoveries they found in there? 
book of Galatians. How do you think that got down there? Folks copying, just like the New Testament told us they did, and sending it all throughout the world at that time. That's how the New Testament text was transmitted. And so you think about these 200,000 variances, 200,000 errors. When you talk about the significant textual variances, uh, let's be honest for a moment here. Mistakes in manuscripts were not uncommon. What did God inspire? Go back to our very beginning here. What did God inspire? He inspired the, the autographs, the originals. What were people doing then once they got the original? They were copying it down and sending it on. That was a difficult job. Like we said, couldn't go down to Kinko's, couldn't go down to Office Depot. You had to employ a scribe. Or, or maybe you were living in a place that didn't have a scribe. And so you're just sitting there having to go line by line trying to copy down these letters and hoping you're getting them in the right order and hoping everyone understands what you're writing. And you don't have electric lights to help you. You've got candlelight. You've got oil light. You don't have nice pens, right? You're, you're dipping a feather in ink or something like that. Blotchy sometimes. Remember that in school? You didn't let your ink get dry enough. You moved your hand over it, smeared everything, right? Think that happened with scribes sometimes? Are there errors? Are there divergences? Are there variances in manuscripts? The answer is yes, and that's not a problem for Christians. And let me show you why it's not a problem. Greek was written in a style at this time called unshield. Uh, Unshield style saw letters that were written at the same height in all caps with no punctuation and no spacing between the words. So, it was fairly easy for scribes because of fatigue, eye strain, to sometimes transpose letters Sometimes miss a letter, sometimes jump down a line when they shouldn't have. And I'd submit to you that's what explains these variances. Look at a practical example here. You can read that on the board, right? Okay. Here's our test. Test number one, look up at the screen. Here we go. What does that say? Now, what are we doing here? Are we inviting Grandpa to the table? This is unshield. It's in Greek unshield. This is English unshield. But it's unshield nonetheless. What are we doing? Are we inviting Grandpa to dinner? Or are we eating Grandpa? Remember, unshield, no punctuation, no spacing, all caps. As that scribe, you're having to depend on your your context to make sure that later on when you do insert punctuation and things like that, you're getting this right. How about this one? Where is he? Where is he? He's now here. Or he's where? Or he's nowhere. Or how about this one? I like this one. It's going to take you a second. Have you ever seen abundance on a table? Or 
Have you ever seen a bun dance on a table? But just from those three examples, kind of silly, I know, but it gets the point across. You're talking about this unshield style of writing. Could you see that where a scribe is having to go from this document to this document, he's reading what's over here and then transcribing it over here, can we see where he might make a mistake, where he might miss a letter, or later after removing uh, out of unshield style writing, maybe where we forget to put a comma or maybe put a comma in the, in, in the wrong place, or maybe we put a space where it's not supposed to be there, maybe instead of eating Grandpa, we're inviting him to the table. We can see where these sorts of mistakes could happen, right? Oh, but Tyler, you've admitted it then. Sorry. Tyler, you've admitted it then. There are mistakes in the manuscripts. I got no problem saying there were mistakes made when these manuscripts were being written down. But let me show you why that's not a problem. You've heard this claim before, haven't you? Usually after somebody binge-watched or read too much Dan Brown, right? Let me tell you what happened. It was the Catholics. I'm going to defend my Catholic friends here for a moment. Somebody said it was the Catholics. And you had those cardinals in their dark robes and their hoods in the smoke-filled room, and they got together centuries ago, and they said, you know what? If we change this Bible, we can keep the power. We can keep the people repressed. And so they kind of do this number right here and they pull out their knives and they cut up the manuscripts and burn them and what's left is what's going to give them power. That's how it goes in Hollywood and that's how it goes in the dramatic presentations, right? And so we're back to our diagram here and we've got our autograph, but down here, down here on, on document tree three, we're going to have our, our Catholic conspiracy. This is where the Catholics get a hold of the of the Bible and say, we're going we're gonna to make it in our own fashion. Does that make any sense? Does that make any logical, rational sense? Could somebody have gotten a hold of a manuscript, altered it, and started a new manuscript tree? Sure. Would we be blind to that? No. Why? You've got all of those other manuscript trees. If the Catholic conspiracy claim that's going to be out there, that is out there, if it's going to be true, what had to happen? You had to have them copied, and then you'd have to have a Mr. Stark, I don't feel so good moment, and poof, they're gone. And all that you're left with are just the corrupted Catholic documents. You would have to get rid of every other document tree in existence. You tell me which is logical. That's not, is it? Can we spot the mistakes in the biblical manuscripts? Down here on number 10, we'll, we'll call it 10X. That's where we've got our mistake. Scribe was tired. He was writing at night. Wind blew through the window, knocked out the, the lamp. He forgot where he was, had to restart. It was a whole thing. He missed a couple letters. Forgot to invite Grandpa to the table. Now we're eating Grandpa. It's a whole thing. Bad, bad deal. Can we figure out where that mistake was made? Can we figure out if a mistake was made? 
Absolutely we can. By doing what? By comparing that manuscript to all of the other ones that were in existence. Even if that manuscript gets copied, all of the other ones got copied too. We start doing some comparison work. We can figure out which is right and which is wrong. Let's do a practical exercise ourselves. I want you to sit here with me and let's resolve the textual variance here. We've got manuscript number one. That's missing. Let's call it the P-looking character. We're going to throw in our octothorpe. It's not a hashtag. It's an octothorpe. We've got our octothorpe there in manuscript number one where that P character should be. Uh, over here in manuscript two, we've got our octothorpe where, where the V character is. Over here on number three, we've got our octothorpe where the N with the long nose is. Can we figure out what the original manuscript said? All three of these manuscripts have a mistake, don't they? They're missing a letter. It got smudged. It got deleted. Something happened. All of them have a mistake. Can we figure out what the original manuscript said? Yeah. We do just exactly what the linguists and the scholars and the archaeologists do. We do this comparison study. How'd the autograph read originally? Look what you just did. You just translated John 11.35, Jesus wept. And all three manuscripts had a mistake. But we did the comparison work. We looked at the evidence that was out there. We found where the mistakes were. and We could identify what it originally said. These variances, these quote-unquote errors, account for 95 to 99% of those 200,000 variances we talked about earlier. Uh, the, the rest of the variances or the errors are the majorly disputed texts of the New Testament. We're not going to take a whole lot of time to, to delve into this, but there are four seriously challenged uh, New Testament texts. John 7:53 through 8:11, Jesus and the woman taken in adultery. Oftentimes, if you're reading that in newer translations, it's all set off in italics or maybe put into brackets or maybe even put into the marginal reading. Uh, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. Uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20. Oftentimes you're going to see that all in italics and newer translations or all in brackets. And then Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. If you believe with all of your heart, you may. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those are the four seriously challenged texts of the New Testament. I am not saying this is the answer. Okay? I am not saying this is the answer. But grant it for a moment, grant the argument that these disputed texts are not legitimate and we throw them out. What changes? Somebody says, but we lose Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Yeah, but we don't lose Acts chapter 2, do we? We don't lose Matthew chapter 28. We don't lose Acts 22 and verse 16, 1 Peter 3, 21. There is no New Testament doctrine that changes even if we threw out these passages. I don't think the answer is to throw them out. I think we can make a good case for most of them. But even if we were to grant the argument, nothing changes. Jesus is still God. He still rose from the dead. Baptism is still essential. And we've got to follow Jesus in order to go to heaven and please God. Nothing changes. And so I would submit to you that the textual variances are not only easily explained, but they're also easily resolved. Don't let large numbers with no context make you feel silly 
or insignificant or foolish as a Christian. There are answers to these issues out there. It says, well, what about those missing books of the Bible? Remember that the canon is created by God. We only recognize it. Uh, by 202 A.D., every New Testament book except 3 John had been cited. Why 3 John? You ever read 3 John? There's not a whole lot to it, is there? Simple reason why it took a little while for it to be recognized. It was one of the later New Testament books written, and there's not a lot to it. But as you move into 373 A.D., all of the New Testament books have been recognized as being inspired. You're not going to get the rest of this on the screen, but I'll read it to you. There is absolutely no evidence of a Catholic conspiracy to hinder the canon. I know that's the stuff of, of, of the Dan Brown books, and Tom Hanks did a really good job acting, and, and, and it makes for compelling drama. There is no evidence anything like that ever happened. No evidence. There are reasons that certain books didn't make it into the canon. Certain books are not recognized as being a part of Scripture. Uh, you've got, for example, the book of First Clement. We're not going to go into a lot here, but the author, number one, never claims to be inspired. That's not an absolutely convincing argument. But you've also then got the problem that the story of the phoenix, bird rising from the ashes, in the book of 1 Clement, that's presented as being a real phenomenon and a real phenomenon that continues every 500 years. A little bit of a problem there. There's a reason why that was excluded. Or you've got the shepherd of Ermos. Uh, why was the shepherd of Ermos not recognized as being inspired? Well, its teachings contradict other books of Scripture about which there is no controversy. Uh, you've got, for example, in Shepherd of Ermos, there's, there's one place in Shepherd of Ermos where it is taught uh, that there comes a period of time where the righteous people, Christians, the saints, can no longer be forgiven of their sins. The wicked can, but those who have come to Jesus, there comes a time where they can no longer ask for forgiveness and receive it. Well, that, that, that conflicts with 1 John. That conflicts with Matthew. Books that are not controverted. That's just two examples when we flew through those, but the point is there are reasons why some of these books are not in the canon. It's not just some guys got together and said, hey, we don't like this one. It doesn't let us do what we want to do, and so we're just going to get rid of it. There, there, there's a whole lot more nuance there. Let's wrap up here with, with this. Let's talk about some legitimate questions that our skeptical friends need to confront. We as Christians need to be able to answer questions. We talked about that from 1 Peter yesterday, didn't we? Being able to give an answer, a reason for the hope that is within us. Just because we need to be able to give answers doesn't mean that we can't ask some questions too. We need to be able to answer questions, but our skeptical friends need to be able to answer some questions too. For example, how can the many instances of scientific foreknowledge in Scripture be explained, taking into account what those ancient communities knew? Right? It's not until the 1800s that modern science figured out that washing hands was a good thing, right? Ignaz Simmelweis realizes that diseases were being spread in the birthing houses 
by the doctors who were going from one birthing mother to another and not doing what? Not washing their hands. He had the great idea. You know what? If I start washing my hands, some of these fevers, some of these infections might not be spread. He was right. His idea was absolutely right. The doctors of the time laughed and mocked him so much he was institutionalized. It was only decades later that his theory was proved correct. What do you see in the Old Testament? What did God want his people to do? How many times in Leviticus, and I I know Leviticus is our favorite book of the Old Testament, and I know sometimes we're reading it at 10 o'clock at night trying to keep our eyes open with toothpicks. How many times do we read about them having to wash? Or we read about how they were to dispose of waste outside the camp and things like that. You don't have a Hebrew medical union established back in this time that's saying you need to circumcise on the eighth day because that's the time when you have a superabundance of vitamin K and clotting agent in your blood. Now, science figured that out centuries down the road. But it's in the book of Leviticus that God told his people to circumcise on the eighth day. God told his people life was in the blood, yet how did George Washington die? Basically, a strep throat infection, how did they go about healing him? Drained his blood. What happened? Killed him. And then science down the road realizes what? Hey, it's not a good idea to suck the blood out of people who have an infection. But rather, we give them medicine and the blood takes it throughout the body. Principles we learn about in the Old Testament, the life is in the blood, circumcised on the eighth day. Wash your hands. Take your waist outside the camp. But how can you explain all of that scientific foreknowledge from these old books? Our skeptical friends need to answer that. And we need to ask it gingerly and respectfully and kindly. But it's a question that needs an answer. How can the many instances of world history being foretold in great detail be explained naturally? Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, right? We've got Greece, we've got Medo-Persia, and we've got the Greeks overrunning the Medes and the Persians, that that one-horned goat and the two-horned ram coming together. Right, 2013, we talked about this some. I'm sure you guys remember every word that we had to say from 2013. Just shake your head, yes, yeah. And that one horn in, in in the Greek goat, it kind of sounds like a unicorn, and my daughter really likes that idea, Right? Alexander and Alexander dies, and what happens? That horn breaks, four little horns come up in his place. What does history tell us? Alexander dies, four generals rise in his place, right? Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, Seleucus. And then they're going to fall to Rome, which I think that's Daniel 11, Daniel 12. How can, how can a naturalistic view Explain that. Our skeptical friends need to provide an answer for that. Here's one I want to encourage you to ask sometime when you hear it. We hear that conspiracy about the Catholics getting together in their smoke-filled rooms and their hoods and their cloaks and 
We're getting together and we're going to subvert the canon and we're going to cut part of it out. We're going to keep the power in the Catholic Church. What evidence is there that any of that ever took place? I studied with some Mormon elders two months ago. That's what they told me. The Bible's been changed. That's why you need the Book of Mormon. The Bible was changed. And what the Book of Mormon does is it fills in the gaps of all the places the Bible have been changed. I said, that is, really? Could, could you show me where? They said, absolutely. They came back two weeks later. And they started talking to me about Henry VIII starting the Anglican Church because the Catholic Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. And said, those are the kinds of changes. I said, I appreciate what you did there. You didn't tell me about any changes in the Bible, though. You just told me somebody tried to change the Bible and didn't, and we all knew about it. Evidence. Don't be afraid to ask for the evidence. That's what we've been about this afternoon, right? We've been showing the evidence. Somebody's going to make a claim. Don't be afraid to ask them for the evidence. The canonicity of Scripture, the integrity of Scripture is an all-or-nothing proposition. Either God has spoken or He hasn't. Either God has inspired His Word or He hasn't. Either God has produced a work that is consistent with His nature or He has not. Either God has created a canon of Scripture for us or He has not. But this entire discussion centers around one person. And that's God. And that's what we've got to determine for ourselves. Does He exist? Did he speak? Because if he did, that makes what you and I hold in our hands today the most important book that's in the world. That's what Scripture is going to claim for itself. That it is inspired by God, that it is breathed out by God, that it contains the very message of the person of God for us. That message is one of sin coming into this world and sin separating us from Him, but that gap being bridged by the blood of His Son who came and died on Calvary, shed His blood so that you and I could be forgiven and we find forgiveness in that blood by believing in Jesus, by turning up from our sins, by confessing Him as our Lord, being baptized into His death, raised to walk a new life. And if you haven't done that, afternoon, we invite you to do that now. Maybe as a Christian, you haven't been living as you should and you want to change. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. We want to help you in whatever way we can if you'd come while we stand and while we sing. We will follow Jesus.